Good morning. Mm. I'm going to read to you this morning something about our awesome God. And this is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And um, I'm reading from the message, partly because we have children here, but I think it's good for all of us to hear these passages, maybe in a different version than we are accustomed to. We look at this sun, and would you want to look right up there at our window that reminds us of our Lord Jesus? And just think about him. We look at this sun and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above, below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence, and he holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning, and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe— people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I'd like to take us down memory lane. Y'all remember grade school? Yeah, Yeah, those were were good years. I I remember those early years, first, second, third grade. I I looked ahead and I saw the fifth graders. I thought, that's where it's at. The the fifth graders are the king of the hill. When, when When you're in fifth grade, you kind of rule grade school. And so I was looking forward to, to that day when I'd finally be a fifth grader and I'd be in Mrs. Lovrens's class because she was the fifth grade teacher at my school, and I'd be the king of the roost. I'll see, the school that I attended was laid out. We had the grade school, and then there was a little bit of an L with a little lobby, and then there was the junior high, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And the fifth grade classrooms were right near where those sixth, seventh, and eighth graders would be. So I made it to fifth grade, and I was finally king, and I looked down the hall, 
And you know what they get to do? In between classes, they get to leave the classroom. And they walk and they go to different classrooms and they have different teachers. They don't just have Miss Lovren's every day for seven hours a day. They have all these different teachers and they have all this, to me, it looked like free time. And I'm like, all right, that's where it's at. When I'm in junior high, I will be king. Then I made it to junior high and I was not king. Because apparently there's something after junior high. But in high school, you can take the classes that you want to take. And you don't even have to go to all of the classes. And if you want to and you do well, you can leave Earth. I mean, this talk that was freedom. So high school, that's where I'm going to be king until I got to high school. And believe me, I was not king. I think this speaks to something. And maybe it's just in me, but I think it's in all of us. One of two things happens. We're either looking for the place where we can finally stand and be at the top of the hill or we're looking for the one who is. We're looking for, okay, that's, that's where the king of the hill is, so I want to get myself close to that person so that I can be influenced and so I can reap benefits. This seems very selfish, but I think it's also very human. You know, this morning, we're going to be looking at the text that we just heard from the message, and we're going to see very clearly, without a shadow of the doubt, who is king? Who is supreme? He who is completely sufficient. He who is supreme. And I'll tell you, this text, this is where the letter starts. So far in the book of Colossians, we have read a greeting, we've read a prayer of thanksgiving, and we had a prayer of intercession. And now in verse 15, Paul is, all right, the reason that I'm writing to you people is going to start now. And I already talked about this reason that he's writing. There was apparently these false teachers who were saying things that were untrue about Jesus, and they were adding things to the gospel. You need to do this and this and this, as well as believe in Jesus in order to be saved. They were adding these things on. And the letter starts, and Paul does something interesting. He doesn't start with refutation. He doesn't start by attacking the false teachers and tearing them down. Instead, he starts with affirmation. He starts talking about, let me tell you, about the most beautiful thing that is true. And I'm going to make a big claim right here. This passage, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, is the single most beautiful, powerful, and explicit claim about who Jesus Christ that we have in all of Scripture. It is gorgeous. And if you noticed in your Bibles, it's probably set a little bit different. You have all these paragraphs, and then you get to verses 15 through 20, and it's laid out like the Psalms. Uh, we believe that this was an early hymn. This was an early creed, an early hymn that the church would sing to profess what they believed to be true about Jesus. So this morning, as we're looking at this text, text, I have a question that I want to have floating around in the back of our minds. What is the right response? What should be our reaction? What should change in us in light of what this text says to be true about Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. So let's take a look at this text in a little bit more detail. And the first thing that we're going to see in these first couple of verses is that Jesus is Lord over all creation, without exception. It starts in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The image. 
The Greek word there is where we get our English word icon, that thing that represents. And this idea is that Christ participates in and is part of the nature of God so completely, so fully, that when we see him, we see that which that cannot otherwise be seen. The Father. The Father is invisible. The Father is spirit. The Father is not embodied like you or I or like Jesus Christ. But when we see Jesus, we see the Father. We see this in the Gospels, right? The disciples have been walking with Jesus for a number of years at this point, and they turn and they say, Jesus, we have a request. Could you show us the Father? And Jesus' response is, I'm sorry, have you not been paying attention? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The reason that I have come is to reveal the Father and to make him known, and the way that's done by looking to me and seeing the perfect representation of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. This is, this is a controversial verse, and it's caused a lot of confusion through the years. There was a heresy in the early church in the fourth century called Arianism, that the church gathered together to refute and to condemn because it was a false teaching. It was the idea that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Christ, was created because he was the firstborn. So there was a time when the Son was not. There was just the Father and maybe the Spirit, but there was a time when the Son wasn't and God the Father created the Son, and that's why he's the firstborn of all creation. Well, if that's the case, then the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, isn't fully God because he hasn't always been. He's created just like we are. This heresy was condemned by the church in 325 AD and 381, if you want to write those numbers down. They're very important numbers. But guess what? That heresy is still around and alive today. There are a number of cults that teach this same thing, that the eternal son is indeed not eternal. But there was a time when he was not, and he's been created. So what do we do with this verse? Well, two things. One, we understand what firstborn means more completely. Two, we just keep reading. If we keep reading, the idea that Jesus, the, the eternal son, was created is refuted right away. But let's first start with what firstborn means. In the context that this is written, Firstborn does not necessarily mean the oldest son, the first one to be born. Firstborn was an office. Firstborn was a position. The firstborn is the one who stands as heir, even if they're not the firstborn. If they're like Jacob, for example, with Jacob and Esau, he is the firstborn of the inheritance. Firstborn is speaking of inheritance. It's also talking about position. The firstborn among the kings is the greatest of all the kings. And even another way to think about this, uh, President Ronald Reagan was born in 1911. That's, that's a, a true statement that I just made, I think. I'll have to check Wikipedia later, but I think it's right. President Ronald Reagan was born in 1911, but when Reagan was born in 1911, was he the president? No. 
But is it wrong for us to say President Reagan was born in 1911? No, because we're speaking of him in terms of what he will one day be. And he will one day be the president. So that's why we say President Reagan was born in 1911. Queen Elizabeth was born in 1920-something. Because she was not queen when she was born, but she was destined to be queen. Reagan was not president when he was born, but he was destined to be president. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal son, who became incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth. He was not born, but he was destined to be incarnate. He was destined to be he who is fully God and fully man. He is the firstborn of all creation. Apparently, the false teacher in Colossae, one of the things that he was saying about Jesus was that he was created. Going on to verse 16, Jesus is Lord over all creation. How can we say that? Well, we see he's the Lord over all creation. He is the creator itself. For by him, all things were created. This shines a new light on Genesis chapter 1. When we see that the Father spoke, and it was and the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. Now that we're looking at Colossians, we see the Father willed that something would be. The Son did the work, and the Spirit ordered the work. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doing what the Holy Trinity always does, work together on the same task in different and significant ways. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and earth. Okay, so He created everything that's in heaven and everything that's on earth. What is Paul saying here? Everything. Everything that's in heaven, everything that's on earth, and everything in between. This is a a, a way of speaking that encompasses everything. Everything that's visible and invisible. That's another way of saying everything. There is not a thing that is made that has not been made by the Son of God. So if he's the firstborn of all creation and he himself is created, then how can this continue to be true because he would have created himself? That's not the way this works. He's the eternal son. There was never a time when he was not because he is fully God, timeless and with the Father in all eternity. So by him all things were created in heaven, earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him. <laughs> he is not just the one who created all the, thi- all the things. He is the one for whom all the things have been created. He is the agent of creation. And he is the goal of creation. All things find their fullness and fulfillment in who this second person of the Trinity, this eternal son, this Jesus Christ, all things were created through him, by him, and for him. This hymn is affirming that there is not a sphere in creation, whether it's what we see, whether it's what we know, whether it's visible or invisible, whether it's authorities. There's not a sphere of creation that he is not the Lord over it. He is Lord over all of creation. So if it's true that Christ reigns over all things and reconciles all things, as we're going to see in a minute, Every aspect of our lives should come under his rule. There's not a part of our existence, visible or invisible, between heaven and earth that does not submit itself to his lordship because he alone 
is king. So he's creator. But another way that we see Jesus as Lord over all creation, he is preeminent. He is supreme. Verse 17, and he is before all things. That doesn't mean in front of. It means before all things. There's nothing that is that existed because he is timeless. He is outside of time. He is fully God. He is preceding all things that exist. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love this. This means that not only did he create everything, he is sustaining everything right now. And he has been doing so from the very beginning. The pews that you are sitting on this morning are being held together by the second person of the Trinity. The manger that held the baby Jesus, the baby Jesus who was fully God as that infant, as he was lying there in that manger, simultaneously in a way that our minds just fry trying to figure out, he was sustaining the very manger that was upholding him. One of the church fathers, Athanasius, of Athens take it to an even more powerful and sobering place. When Jesus Christ was hanging upon that cross to die for our sins on our behalf, he was holding together the very nails that were holding him to that cross. Think about that sacrifice. Think about that willingness to be the one who is sustaining the very object of torture that would be the cause of his human death. He holds and sustains all things. He provides all things. There is nothing that you need that does not come from him that he provides. He is the answer to every question. So he is preeminent. He is sustainer. He is the Lord of all creation. But as Paul goes on, we see not only is he the Lord of all creation, Jesus is the Lord over the church. This reminds me of the story about a Norwegian pastor in the 19th century. He's pastoring this church, and then he finds out that the king of Norway is going to be coming to his church that Sunday morning. And so that pastor did what I think most pastors would do, and they look at the sermon and go, no. Not today. And he set that sermon aside and he went up to preach and the king was there and the sermon that he preached was looking at virtue, the virtues that we see in our king, these Christian virtues that we see embodied in our king. And he kept gesturing to the king of Norway and saying, as our king is gracious, so should we be gracious. As our king is humble, so should we be humble. And he thought it went pretty well. And the king left, and then he heard, you are going to be receiving a delivery from the king. And he's like, all right, I wonder what kind of award I'm going to receive from the king of Norway from that incredible sermon where I talk so highly about our king. And then this large box arrives, very large box. And the pastor opens up the box, and he gets rid of all the, the cardboard, not cardboard, this is the 19th century. He gets rid of all the paper and, and shavings that are protecting it, and he sees a huge crucifix, a life-size crucifix. And he goes, what? We already have crucifixes in this church. Why is he giving me another one? 
And then he sees underneath it, there is an envelope with the seal of the king, a letter. And so he excitedly takes that envelope and he opens it up and he begins to read, I have provided you this crucifix so that you might hang it on the west wall of the church so that whenever you are preaching, you are remembering the only king to whom you should be referring. This king, this king Jesus is the Lord over not only all creation, he is the Lord over the church. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, he is the beginning. We already got this from the creation stuff. He is the beginning. All things were created by him, through him, for him. He is the beginning of all things. The firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? That's such a strange expression. It's a beautiful way of speaking of our eternal hope. Remember that cross that he was hanging upon on that day, and he died. He died, and he was buried. But the gospel, the gospel does not die on the cross. We often say that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. But we forget that the gospel's not done yet. The gospel continues because three days later, Jesus Christ arose from the dead. The gospel includes in it defeat over death and the devil. He arose from the dead. He is the firstborn of the resurrection. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. You and I, we who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have a hope not just in our sins being forgiven. We have a hope not just in when we die, we get to go to heaven and be with Jesus. We have a hope in the resurrection. One day, we will be restored to incorruptible bodies. We will be able to walk with our Savior, see him face to face, because finally we will be made like him. So when it says he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, he is the first one to be resurrected from the dead in a glorified body, never to die again, but to live everlasting. That's our hope, that we would join he who is the firstborn of the dead and be resurrected along with him. Note the significance that the church has here. Because of its relationship with Jesus, it is key to the redemptive plan of Jesus. Where is salvation found? Salvation is found in the gospel that the church preaches. Church is the context where sanctification, where redemption occurs. The church today is the incarnation of Jesus. We are meant to be the hands and feet of Jesus until he returns again. The church is the place where Jesus should be seen and the Father might be revealed. We are to continue the work that Jesus started to reveal the Father and make him known by what we say, by what we do, how we love, how we serve. He is the head of the church. Verse 19, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hearing Eugene Peterson's The Message rendition of this, he really camped out on that fullness, that he is spacious, that there is room. There is nothing lacking in Jesus Christ. Nothing. He is complete 
He is fully sufficient. Jesus, Jesus Christ replaces the temple. Worship is no longer restricted to the sacred temple. Worship is found in he who is the fulfillment of the temple, Jesus Christ. Jesus replaces the holy mountain where God dwelled because now God dwells with us through the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, we see God's redemptive power. He is Lord over the church. We continue the last verse, verse 20. I need to read 19 again for context. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Does it say some things? It says all things. One day all of creation will be reconciled to our God. One day we who are in Christ Jesus will be reconciled. And and what Paul is doing here with this language of reconciliation, he is flipping the entire legal system on its head. Because this word for reconcile speaks uh, in diplomatic terms of when the guilty party approaches the offended party in order to seek reconciliation. But that's not what happens here. Instead, he who has been offended, our holy God, approaches us with the message of redemption. God takes the initiative. And thank God for that. Because if he had not taken the initiative in regards to our salvation, none of us, none of us would be able to be saved. Because none of us, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, starting it off in our hearts, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, doing the work of salvation in our hearts, every single one of us would put up our hands to this holy God in whom all things can find their fulfillment and say, no. Thank God that he took the initiative to reconcile us to him. And not just us. All of creation, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. How is your love for Jesus? In light of what we just heard and read through this amazing hymn about who Christ is, how is your love for Jesus? Is it the relationship cooling off a little bit? Is there distance? Is there there space? Or is there closeness and intimacy and warmth? He is the God of all creation. He is the Lord of over the church. In Him is the fulfillment of all things. In Him we have the sustaining grace and mercy that gives us the strength to continue for another day. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus didn't just reverse the effects of the fall and of sin. It created in us the hope that we would finally be able to be the image bearers God created us to be. That we would be able to reflect the beauty and majesty of God because we have been saved from our sin. And when Jesus comes back, that work will be complete in him. So, what's the point? At the beginning of this message, I asked the question, how are we to respond in light of what this hymn has to say about what is true about Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity? 
Grow in your affection for Jesus by believing rightly about him. Let me say that again. Grow in your affection for Jesus by believing rightly about him. But I could reverse this. Believe rightly about Jesus and grow in your affection for him. What comes first? So my command from the text of Scripture for me, for all of us, is that we would desire to grow in our knowledge of him so that we might grow in our affection for him. Or grow in your affection for him so that you might grow in your knowledge of him. It's, it's a dance. And how do we do that? We need to ask ourselves regularly this question. How is it with my soul? How is it between me and the Lord of all creation? The Lord of the church. The one in whom I have life. The one that grants me my very next breath. How is it with my soul? And I would suggest that this hymn is something we can return to. This short passage, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, that speaks these beautiful, timeless, cosmic, mysteriously powerful, beautiful truths about the second person of the Trinity. Return to it. Be reminded of what is true and worship him. And in that worship, we will grow in our affection for him. In that worship, we will grow in our knowledge of him. And then one day, one day, he will return and we will be able to see him clearly. We will be able to know him in a way that we can know the men and women sitting next to you because we will be walking with him face to face. The gospel does not die upon the cross. It continues into the resurrection. That is our hope. So I'd like to do something just a little different this morning. Could I ask everyone to stand? And I'm going to read this passage yet in another translation. So we've heard it this morning in the message from Eugene Peterson. We've heard it in the ESV, which is what I've been preaching from this morning. Now I want to read it in the CSB, just so we're hearing this in these different translations. And I'm going to read this passage, and I'm going to close by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And I want you to then respond and say, thanks be to God. So let's hear this message about the centrality of Christ one more time. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or powers or rulers, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And by him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him, to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat.